Hello and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast, the podcast where we discuss a variety of justice-related issues affecting the world over a cup of coffee. On this episode, we are returning to our look at the UK criminal justice system, with a particular focus on the prisons in this country. Today's podcast is the second half of a two-parter, so if you haven't heard the previous one, please do listen back and hear our conversation with Bex. Bex is someone who grew up in and out of prison, more in than out during her younger years, and she gave a remarkably articulate description of her experience going through the criminal justice system, committing offences, serving sentences, some short, some long, and the impact of drugs and homelessness, and ultimately what caused her to change. I spoke to Bex just before Christmas alongside Dr. Sarah Senka. Sarah is a chartered psychologist and a research consultant with a specific interest in the issues of prison reform and supporting offender rehabilitation. And we had our conversation about an hour after we spoke to Bex, and I got to ask her why she chooses to spend so much of her career studying this element of society, and why we should care about what happens inside our prisons or for the rights of our prisoners. And the rest, well, I'll just let you listen along yourselves. Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Isn't this exciting? We're not in our usual space. We're actually we're in a Jury's Inn hotel on Brighton Seafront. We've come down to do a bit of a special recording. And I want you to actually want you to introduce yourself. So just tell me a little bit about how you became a doctor and where your where your specialism is. Okay, so um, I am Dr. Sarah Senka. Uh, Do you insist on everyone calling you doctor? Absolutely. Uh, fair enough, I would. Yeah, electricity companies, any drop-down box, <laughs> I'm ticking doctor. <laughs> I worked hard for that, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so the reason I'm a doctor is because I have a PhD, and my PhD was in actually in health and human sciences, which doesn't really explain what I do. Um because my background is psychology and um, criminal justice, health and substance misuse, that kind of thing. Fascinating. And you've been doing this since university? Uh, yeah, pretty much, yes. Not stopped since uni. Undergrad, master's, PhD, started my own research company, just kept going. Amazing. Like normally we we start, I, I try and do a bit of fluff at the start about coffee, but we've just dived straight oh, in have. there today. <laughs> I mean, you can tell me, I, I'm always interested in how people take their coffee. I'm obsessed with coffee. Um, I tend to think about it from the minute I wake up, like when am I going to have my coffee? Where am I going to have my coffee? But I do have it offensively milky. I love a latte. I used to have it all syrupy, but no, just now straight up. Coffee and milk, and normally with an oat milk, that would be my preference. Do you, is that any any reason you're like lactose intolerant? or? I'm lactose intolerant. Yeah, it's one of those, isn't it? I'm beginning to think that <laughs> I might have something like that. I think it's lactose, but every time I, I love pizza, but every time I have pizza, like afterwards, I just... I just feel it's just indigestion. <laughs> it's just I'm glad indigestion. You said it's, I'm glad you've gone with the indigestion. No, it is. I promise. I promise. It's just I, I end up having to just take a couple of like those indigestion tablets. But I just love pizza so much. It's weird, isn't it? You get slightly older, your body starts responding differently to things. Uh, so I'm actually grateful that it's become trendy to to have dairy. So trendy. Because when I was first told I was lactose intolerant, you know, you just couldn't go into a coffee shop and get 
you know, soya or oat or almond or cashew or all these different things. But now, well, we're in Brighton. It's like you can you can have any milk that you want, probably. Yeah. From a stone or, you know, anything. It's <laughs> pretty difficult. Yeah. Back on to Sorry. finding out about Dr. Sarah Senka. I want to know... Um, Obviously, one of the reasons I invited you on a podcast is, is not just because of your research and, and your area of specialism, but you've clearly got a passion to, to find out as much as you can and to provide advice um, and some sort of level of consultation on the criminal justice system in this country. And I just kind of want to know, now where did that journey begin for you? Um, so that's a question I've been asked quite a lot, and um, I don't really think there's like a clear answer, but what I do know is that when I was growing up, I was in a sort of a paradox of a household where my mum was super straight-laced, like if a, we were in a petrol station once and um, some polos accidentally fell in her bag and she went back the next day to take them back, you know, <laughs> like she's like super straight-laced. And then my dad, who grew up in the East End, um, you know, my granddad was in prison. Um, uh, my dad was always had sort of like friends and associates around and they looked like they were some sort of from some sort of film and, you know, it wasn't like Bambi or anything. And all these wonderful stories that they'd sit around and tell. And I just was so intrigued by what could make two people who'd come together but be so different. Like, why? why was it that, well, just some people in general think it's OK to commit crime or they choose to commit crime, whereas... I'm like my mum and I would I would never break the law like knowingly. So I was just intrigued, like what is it that causes somebody to behave in that way? Mm. And then kind of pursued that in a more that question in a more formal kind of academic setting. I wanted to understand the drivers and the causes and then importantly how we can make people stop or help people stop mm. committing crime. Mm. Amazing. Do you feel like you you reached certain conclusions in in your research up to this point about the drivers of crime <laughs> what causes someone to commit crime you mean yeah yeah in respect to what causes people to commit crime and in terms of so like a better approaches to, to dealing with um, mm. the criminal fraternity or yeah. people that get drawn into crime yeah so I think that it's easy for us to think that in like really binary terms like either you're a criminal or you're not or you're an offender or you're not when actually it's really not that clear and there's this real sliding scale and you know as I'm sure you're aware everybody has a backstory and everyone has a really interesting rich story which I love about my job that I get to hear people's stories and inevitably it will be I'm sort of in the nurture camp rather than nature and I think that most people's life experiences will have led them to make sort of certain decisions, which sometimes it's a means of survival. You know, mm. when we were talking to Bex earlier um, and she's talking about coming out from prison with 46 pounds and nowhere to live, sometimes people are forced to commit crime because they simply have no choice. Mm. Um, I haven't met anybody, well, I rarely meet people in the criminal justice system who have come from a really loving happy well-adjusted background mm. and that's not to say that people who don't come from those backgrounds will always go on to commit crime but there is a correlation mm. and um, I think that can't be ignored and so in terms of what we can do to support people out of crime um, fostering an environment that maybe they haven't had in their upbringing that's healthy that's positive that's um, instills aspiration into them that nurtures them 
I think that's really only a positive thing. And yet that feels incongruent when you're looking at somebody who's maybe done something that's really harmful or hurt another person. Um, That can feel like an uncomfortable thing to say publicly. But actually, I do really think that that's the way forward. I think sometimes maybe it's more difficult for for charities and organisations that work with ex-offenders to... I might be completely wrong, but but to, to rally support for that cause above other causes, mm. um, because there's a you know there's a certain sense of why am I spending my money to help this person that's committed a crime when I could use the same money in, in, in so many other causes? But yeah. but that's a challenge because of course we want to we want to stop reoffending. We yeah. want to look at you know why is that happening in the first place? And if we ignore it and we lock just lock people away. Mm. And think, well, we've dealt with it, right? They, they've committed a crime, we've stuck them in a, in a building with bars, and, and that will sort them out. Of course it doesn't. Exactly. Um, well, at least my experience of it, it, in most cases, it, in some cases, it's pretty ineffective, just locking mm. someone away without maybe putting something into their time yet. Do you feel like, so we'll dive straight in here, but um, you know, time spent in prison, uh, it can be a positive thing, or is it, is it always just a negative thing? Well, um, that's actually something that we touched upon. Well, Bex mentioned something earlier as well, which is that prison can be a real opportunity for somebody if it's used in a constructive way and if that person is given opportunities whilst they're in prison. And exactly as you said, we don't live in a country where people are given um, a sentence, you know, like in America where they're given sort of 300 life sentences there's a very small number of people in our prison system who are never going to be released, but the majority will be. So that's why we absolutely have a duty to enable the, the justice system to be an opportunity for change. And, um, yeah, like we've just touched on, that that can feel un, unpop- like an unpopular discourse. I often get asked, you know, why do you want to help these people? Like, why are you using your, you know, your skills, or your resources to help these people? And it's like, well... Who are when you say these people, you know, do you speed? Do mm. you have you never lost your temper in a moment of rage? Um, and also the people that are in our prison system are so often also a victim. Mm. Um, but again, we put them in that one, we put them in a box. You're either a victim or a perpetrator, when actually you can be both. Mm. And I'm kind of glad that you raised this actually, because in coming on the podcast and in having listened to previous episodes, which obviously talks about human trafficking and modern slavery you know which are catastrophic offenses I was thinking gosh how can I come on here and advocate for rehabilitation or um, any kind of kindness towards perpetrators when we've to to date we've kind of been quite victim-led quite you know rightly but it's about thinking about realistically these people are going to come into our back into society and for everyone's sake it's beneficial to kind of offer them support and opportunity to change yeah yeah i think from my perspective you know time spent in the police really in some regard um you know there but by the grace of god go i you know found people in situations that that have behaved actually quite quite normally or sometimes quite reasonably but things have gone very very badly for them as a consequence of their environment or, or whatever and before they know it, you know, they're stepped before a court and, and sent down for a prison term. And obviously the consequences of being an ex-offender, you know, having that on their record when you're then going for jobs. Now, I know there's legislation to protect that, um, to give them a fair chance at a new job. But, you know, the reality is that life becomes a lot more difficult 
once you've got a stained record. Mm. Where were you between these dates? Why is there no job there? Oh, actually, it's because I was inside for an assault or whatever. It's tough, you know, mm. and, 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 it, and life isn't, you said, you know, it's not binary. You know, it's not black and white. Sarah, I wonder if, you, know, you mentioned living in, 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 a, in, a, in a household with, with two different characters and your parents, but this interest in, in finding you know, justice, finding something that is right in a system that's broken, that's, that's ailing, you know, where did that, does that go back to university or does it come back to an earlier stage in your life of seeing what's right and wrong? Yeah, I don't know. I think it was almost inherent in me. Um, like I, my mum would will tell stories of uh, me coming out of school, sort of holding the hand of someone who's, you know, to all intents and purposes, a bit of a muddle. And um, we, I had a, a a girl come round once when I was probably about five, and she came off, came home, took her shoes off, and like was really like digging her feet in our carpet, and. My mum was like, well, you know, what what's going on there? And she and she she didn't have any carpet at home. She didn't have gas. She didn't have electricity. And wow. um, I don't know. Somehow I'd sniffed her out and thought, oh, you know, I'd like to invite her around for tea. And always sort of yeah, picking up waves and strays. And um, then I I got bullied at school, and I think that really created a sense of injustice. That 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 felt really unfair. Yeah. And that. And that kind of first spawned my interest in wanting to become a psychologist because initially I wanted to become a child psychologist and help. The thought of a child being distressed or upset was my main motivation for doing um, psychology at uni. Mm. But then I kind of got diverted because I did a placement with youth justice and then that consolidated my interest in like forensic psychology. Right. And what, what particular areas? I know I was sort of reading your... Um, LinkedIn page uh, earlier and and it was you know a lot of your your studies was in in looking at drugs right yeah because I sort of accidentally um fell into a specialism around substance misuse um that's as a result of my PhD which looked at um heroin and crack use um in Essex and I knew you know that Drugs were such a prevalent issue in so many um, issues around crime, but I hadn't looked at it as a um, a topic in its own right. And then for three years, kind of immersed myself in the world of yeah, heroin and crack cocaine and became a bit of a, not an expert, but specialised in that. And then subsequently have done lots of different um, evaluations and research projects looking at how we can make the best kind of substance misuse services for, for perpetrators of crime. It's funny, I was, so the way we're going to sort of splice this podcast up is with um, in another uh, a talk with, with Bex. Um, Bex's life experience involved spending uh, you know, a lot of her youth uh, in prison and she, she's going to give us a great uh, perspective on, on what it's like, you know, life sort of before, during and after that process, um, which is fascinating. But I, I just wonder, there's a lot of scrutiny on the, on the prison system in this country and it has been this way for several years. I think it's one of those, those issues that gets passed around by political parties and no one seems to be adequately investing in it or taking note of it. Maybe it's actually because of the issues we've already discussed. You know, it's, it's unpopular. Just, it's not popular. It's not, an attra- it's not a vote winner. Um, no one's really out there marching for the, for the welfare of prisoners. Uh, but one of the issues that was brought up on this recent general election we had in the UK was was a certain degree of prison reform. Well, I remember the only thing I can really remember from that was scrapping like short term sentences. Like, do you have a, an opinion on that? 
Yeah, I think that um, I think as Bex was saying um, to us before that that a short term sentence um, can be terrible or brilliant depending on what situation you're li- you're coming from. So um, you know, Bex was describing earlier how a short sentence can actually offer a bit of respite. Um, if you're homeless on the street and you just need a you know you need a couple of weeks to get yourself sorted, then that may be more beneficial than somebody who's committed a petty offence, they're going to get a criminal record for not, you know, and a conviction for not really anything worthwhile. And um, that sentence is not going to be helpful. I think the main thing about a short sentence is that there's not much work that can be done. No, let me rephrase that. There isn't much work that is done on a short sentence. If a short sentence was used more productively, while someone was in the prison system, then they wouldn't be as bad. Um, I, that's the main issue. How uh, and and it's 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 about how a sentence is used rather than how long it is. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it was always fascinating listening to to to, to Bex talk and how she sort of advocated for longer pr- prison terms because mm. it's actually in that time that they get to engage with with services. Mm. Um, do you? I mean, are there any services you've observed in your studies that are more effective than others? Um, I think that there are there are ingredients that make a service um, or a system successful, and I think that um, I don't think that anybody should have to go to prison to get the help that they need. That yeah. that support yeah. should be available in the community. Yeah, if something's gone wrong, if people are committing crime mm. for the sake of being housed in a prison where they might receive some sort of service, yeah. right? Because there's all sorts of other. Uh, I know I'm going to answer your question. I know I've drifted, but I just want to say that there are obviously. There are downsides to being in, in, in a prison. There's a risk of being institutionalised. Yeah. You know, there's guys that have been in prison for so long they don't know how to cross a road anymore. Yeah. Like, they just haven't had to do that for yeah. however many years. But in terms of a service that makes a difference, I think any service that gives somebody time, that's not time limited, that um, views that person as a human being, treats that person as a human being does what they say they're going to do because people in our prison system have been let down so many times by so many people, so many systems, so many services, that if somebody is to sit down with someone and say, do you know what, you're all right, you've got loads of potential and I'm going to stick with you, that continuity of care, that consistency, like forming a human bond or relationship with someone for an individual that might not have even made eye contact with someone for a number of years because they're so ashamed of their behaviour or society tells them that they're not worthwhile, mm. they're the ingredients that make a service able to change somebody's life. Mm. Yeah. Are there examples around the world that you know of um, where, where countries are dealing with prisoners better than, than we are? Uh, yeah, Norway. Norway's got it pretty good. Um, I would love to go to Norway and find out more about their system because their um, reoffending rates are really low. They actually incarcerate a very small number of people. I mean, in the UK, we ha- we um, imprison the largest number of individuals in Western Europe. Um, wow! I yeah, didn't know that. yeah. So we've got a lot of people in prison and a lot of people who reoffend when they come out of prison. So clearly, there's an issue there. Whereas in Norway, they don't really in prison that many people they prioritize who needs to go in there and then when they come out their reoffending rate is pretty low mm. um so they do a, they do a good job of uh, in there and i think one of the reasons is that their prisons tend to be purpose built you know we're using prisons in this country which are 
gosh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old yeah. and people sharing cells with there are three men in a cell, you know, just like sort of decency and human rights issues yeah. um, are sort of being a little bit stretched there. Um, and, 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 you know, if you're in an environment which feels unpleasant mm. and it's dirty and it's rat infested, mm. like how are we going to like uh, inspire people to mm. change? And what are we saying about how worthwhile they are? Mm. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think... You know, someone did a uh, did a terrible thing to you, your mm -hmm. property, your family, your loved ones, something. There is a, a huge part of you that wants retribution. That wants that individual to be punished, not just to be reformed, but to 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 receive some sort of some sort of punishment for for what they've done. And I completely get that. You know, and anyone who's listening that has been a victim of crime will 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 be able to to appreciate that. Um, but the reality is as well is we want a better world, you know, without sounding like a, like a complete uh, idealist. Of course we do. We, we want less crime to take place. We want less people to be ill-affected by someone that might have hurt us, mm. right? Yeah. So, so, and there's, there are prisons around the world which are so horrendous that it's like, you know, it's a living hell. I don't think ours fit in that cat category. But they're terrible all the same, and I need no convincing of that. I mean, it's quite apparent. I just wonder what the, where the, the there's, there's people sometimes talk about prisons being like a holiday camp, you know, which of course they're not. But, but where the, mm. where do we position it? Where do we get it right? Yeah. So that a victim of crime feels, justice, has been feels done. justice yeah. is being done when that person mm. is incarcerated. Yeah. But we still potentially, potentially mm. foster um, rehabilitation. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's such a valid point And, you know, I'm not, I've worked with hundreds of victims of crime in my research as well as perpetrators of crime. So I definitely see both sides of the coin. And if a restrictive, punitive, nasty regime was going to um, mean that there were less victims in the world, I'd advocate for it. But I know that it doesn't. So the reason why I'm advocating for decent, humane uh, systems that foster the you know opportunities for change is really with victims in mind because we don't want future victims um you know our justice system in loss of liberty is their punishment they're told when they can shower when they can eat when they can contact their loved ones you know yeah they might have a tv in their room but they're behind their door from about 5 30 in the evening so imagine if we were in a cell with no source of entertainment nothing to distract us just our thoughts how productive is that going to be for someone to not offend when they come out? Right. Um, so I think it's always important to keep in mind that anything that's seen to be kind of soft or cuddly or, um, you know, like a holiday camp yeah. is actually only really done so with the vision to reduce reoffending and therefore future victims, yeah. if that makes sense. There's a, uh, no, it does make sense. I think that... There's a lot of public interest at the moment on on prison systems in this country, not um, in many ways linked to what happened recently in the UK. There was a, there was a terrorist uh, attack on London Bridge. Uh, a man by the name of Usman Khan, who had been imprisoned for for a terrorism offence, um, and it was released on license, committed a you know, horrendous act and, and claimed lives in a co as a consequence. Uh, that's going to get a lot of people angry. 
right? And it's like there's money being spent uh, on the program, you know, prevent program, that it's looking, we've got to, how do we deal with these issues? How do we deal with radicalization? How do we, is it, can we lock people up for eternity or, or, or can we release them back into community in a safe fashion? Mm. And that was obviously a failing on our part in some way, on the government's part. Um, what's your opinion on, on, on the way we, we deal with them? I mean, I know sort of terrorism uh, and dealing with, uh, with radicalists isn't your area of specialism, but because of the timing, it'd be, I'd be fascinated mm. to hear your thoughts on this recent incident. Yeah, so I'm doing a prevent project at the moment. I'm evaluating um, three prevent projects in the north of England currently. What I will say about that attack that happened recently in London is how pleased I was that the victim's father was really pushing the fact that this is not an opportunity this shouldn't be used as an opportunity for more a more punitive approach but actually and without, uh, without knowing the full details of that case what seems to have happened there is that 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 individual was released from prison without much um without the parole board kind of checking that person's risk it happened automatically he obviously didn't get adequate support in the community from you know, any number of partners that will be involved. Like, we're just talking about the prison service here, but actually mm. the justice system is made up of court, police, mm. probation, um, CRC, when it, you know, that's now being expanded. But What's CRC? Um, so uh, the National Probation Service was um, split up uh, several years ago, and community rehabilitation companies are private companies which were designated to support lower-risk offenders in the community, whilst the National Probation Service held on to the high-risk um, offenders and and after several years it turns out that that wasn't a good idea right um surprise surprise yeah so what I'm s my point is that um we can use this as a platform to generate hate generate fear yeah. um uh, like aggression towards specific groups you know incite all this kind of really fear heightened yeah anger. when actually yeah. i think it's even more evidence that 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 person needed support um, you know that he he had access to an um, an IP, which is an inter intervention provider. Generally, an intervention provider for somebody that's radicalized will go in for about six to eight weeks and work with that person. That's not very long, mm. really. Mm. You know, they need to have consistent monitoring, but mm. also consistent support. You know, what's going on in that person's life? Why is he isolated? Who's mm. he talking to? Like, but we don't have the resources to input into those kind of cases, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, completely. I mean, there's one of the sort of suggestions is that we build more prisons. You know, I know uh, certain political parties were, were advocating for that. Let's just build more prisons. That's what we're doing. We're overcrowded. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the answer is we just need to make more of these places. And you know, US um, is another example for, for a point of comparison. Norway might be a positive one. Um, and I don't want to be too... Um, sort of generalized in this approach but i think it's fairly well it sort of understood that the u.s prison system is in a bit of a mess as well i know it's a privatized system it's very different to us but it's you know they lock up more i think more people than any other country in the world mm. um so, and have done so for a significant period of time now so which suggests that it's not working right surely a sign of a of a you know, a working criminal justice system is that crime will go down and reoffending will go down, and that I don't think that's evident. Forgive me if I'm talking nonsense, but I'm, f I'm fairly confident that being the case. If pr building more prisons isn't the answer, mm. what you know, what is? 
Well, building more prisons would only solve the issue of overcrowding, which inevitably does cause does cause issues. Yeah. You know, we've mentioned about the number of guys in a cell. Um, and uh, I think our prison system at the moment is about seven or eight thousand over what what it can what it was recommended to kind of contain. Um, if that's not the answer, I think we need to go back to these root, you know the root causes of crime. Why are people committing offences in the first place? Um, you know, is it out of necessity because they don't have access to? You know, is it, is it an issue of survival? Um, is it because they need more mental health support to kind of deal with past trauma or um, anger issues or personality disorders or, you know, because so many parts of our system are cracking um, that I think that we're s- crime is a symptom of that. Yeah. Um, so we really need to go back and look at those root causes and drivers, you know, uh, Bex and we were just talking earlier about substance misuse. So, you know, we need to maybe invest more in kind of building recovery and um, reducing demand for substances. Why are people, what are people using substances to cope with? What is it that they're, they're escape, trying to escape from? You know, if we could support people around managing that better. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So, and all of that requires time and money. Mm. And that's what's kind of been stripped from our system. Mm. Um, I should also say at this juncture that whilst it feels like I'm being quite negative about the system, there are so many unbelievable professionals with such goodwill that want the same things that we're talking about, that that joined the professions that they're in to give people opportunities for change. Yeah. But because the system is so stretched yeah. and fit to burst, yeah. uh, they're unable to kind of enact what they'd like to. Yeah. You touched on the fact that... Um you know, we need to figure out why people are committing these crimes in the first place. You know, what have you found that any particular trends amongst your studies with with prisoners? Um, I imagine it's a it's a sort of mixture of of, of causes, but yeah, um, you know, there's a there is a there's a typical trajectory. You know, like um, sort of dropping out early from school again because people maybe haven't had the time given to them by teachers or parents to kind of say hey what's going on here so people don't want to put their hand up they don't want to ask for help they they fall by the wayside they um then they're sort of out on the streets they get involved in you know other things um, they need some ways to fund their lifestyle you know there's I would say that like a lack of opportunities or a lack of early kind of support or investment so like early intervention and prevention is so important um, like young people, yes. like children, yes. and also so much stuff in this arena is sort of intergenerational. So it's not hard to necessarily see, like, you know, what families yes. m- this might be replicated in, or um, it's so hard to offer a succinct answer to that question, you know, what kind of causes crime or what yeah. other kind of themes. I'd say what's more thematic is that across crime types, it doesn't matter if I'm interviewing someone who's in for murder or sexual offences or. Um, you know, drug offences. Actually, what people all say is that there wasn't really a space for me to go to and ask for early help to say, okay, let's take a sexual offender for uh, example. Um, I'm having these thoughts. I'd, you know, I'd, I know that they're inappropriate. I'd really like some early help with that. It's such a stigmatised offence that that's not really a popular thing for you to take to sure. your GP. Sure. Or, you know, if you were experiencing anger issues, uh, real jealous rage. Could, who would you go and talk to about that? Mm. You know, like in terms of getting mental health support. Mm. 
there's lots of people that are crying out for help yeah. early doors yeah. and they don't get that. And yeah. then they commit an offence, they get stuck in the criminal justice system, that's an opportunity for change. Yes. And sometimes that's available and sometimes, sadly, it's not. Yeah, that brings us back to that point, doesn't it? You know, because There's something wrong with the system when, when, when we're only really going to deal with the matter within, within a prison uh, or, or some sort of system like that. You know, these, these measures need to be addressed way beyond someone commits a crime. And it, it's the system, right? It's, you know, like, like you've noticed, um, you've pointed out, we don't want to be so down uh, because constantly being negative doesn't really help anything. But I'm noticing you know, there, is, there is a system in place where if we're going to look at preventing such issues, a lot of it might be, uh, or is, you know, just mental health issues that are related to people, whether they're depressed or they have mental health issues, can lead to, to, to crime. Okay, so well, uh, let's lean into the NHS, right? The National Health Service in the UK, let's lean into opportunities for people to talk to their doctors. Or, well, we know the NHS is massively stretched to getting a doctor's appointment is super hard, getting a mental health assessment is super hard. There's the cycle, right? It's not, it's not binary. It's not simple. It's not um, black and white. These things are, are, are connected. Mm. I'm kind of interested, and I wish I'd asked you at the start, Sarah, like, as a doctor studying these things, you must spend a lot of time in prisons. You know, what, what took, taught me for a working week for you? Wow. Well, what I love about my job is that um, every day and every week is so variable. So I have my own research company, and as part of that, could be working on up to 10 different research projects at any one time and they could be around modern slavery or steroid use or the prevent agenda or um, you know uh, causes of um, perpetrators of sexual offences you know what are their drivers so super varied um, so a week might include yeah doing some work in different prisons across the country for different projects it might be about interviewing people about how are the health services in prisons how would they like to make them look different or where are the gaps what do they need and then it might be um, traveling up north to interview a young person who's at risk of being radicalized and finding out what do you need how has this service helped you um, any day and in a day I could be talking to different people about different things but ultimately always about is this service or system working for you and if not what do we need to put in place yeah. to, to make sure it does? So valuable. And is that is that quantitative research? Is it qualitative research? It is never quantitative. <laughs> I hate statistics and numbers. <laughs> get somebody else to do that for me. So yeah. it's always qualitative, which is really beautiful because it means that I get to meet people. Mm. I get to hear their story mm. for that hour or however long that I'm with them. Yeah. I try and make sure that they're heard and they're listened to. And then I take my job really seriously in the fact that I've they've given me their time, their information, sometimes in a situation where they're like, what, what are you going to do for me? Like nothing's changed before. Right. Why should yeah. I why should I tell you yeah. this information? So I take it really seriously that I should do justice to what they've told me yeah. and share that information with with change makers, with commissioners, with people who can make a difference. Um, so qualitative is is yeah is is my my thing what do you find rewarding about what you do um i feel super privileged to walk in environments that people you know people love a crime documentary on tv yeah. you know all these fly on the wall prison documentaries that people love to watch and fascinated in and, and i feel genuinely privileged that i get to travel across the country 
and step into somebody else's shoes just for a moment of in time and try and experience and see things through their eyes mm. and like honestly I feel so lucky to be able to do that like to just have a little look in and peek around and be like oh what's going on here then yeah. what's that about you know it's fascinating why do why are these you know why why are these issues important to you mm. why isn't this and not another you know vast because psychology is a vast area you could be doing yeah. all sorts. why have you been drawn into this because I just feel like this is a marginalised group. It's a part of... It's the waves and strays again. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah. You know, people always say, oh, aren't you scared going into prisons? And I say, no, because so many people in there are are, are vulnerable. Yeah. And they're, yeah, they may have committed a heinous crime, and I'm not saying that that's acceptable. Please don't think that in any way. But I'm saying, well, let's just look behind, like under the surface and... And I care about this cause because I want to give people a voice that don't necessarily have a voice. Otherwise, they're a statistic, they're a number, they're a card, you know. They're, they don't get their voice heard. So yeah. if I can give them that opportunity and try and instigate or initiate change. Like, I used to work one-to-one -one with people. I used to do one-to-one -one therapy in prisons. And I'd be frustrated because I would... The things that were contributing to their agony were systemic so that's why I moved into research to try and influence or use their voices to try and influence the system and mm. make bigger change. Yeah. Have you found much success? Mm. Yeah, there's been pockets of success for sure. There have. Um, there's a project in Essex that I did with a colleague several years ago, actually starting with my PhD. And as a result of that, there's now a service in Essex that exists to help um, offenders with complex needs um, so that they don't fall through the gaps. You know, we tend to think of people as having like, oh, you use substances or you've got mental health or you're homeless. Or what if I've got all three and I've got a learning difficulty? Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like those people need multiple kind of uh, resources and a holistic kind of approach. So there's a service now in Essex that exists yeah. to support that group as Amazing. a result of our research, yeah. um, which I'm really proud of. Sarah, I want to ask you what it's like if I, you know, God forbid, um, was was arrested for a crime and I got sentenced um, to prison. What does that, for those of us that haven't been through that experience, you know, what does that look like for someone mm. going into the prison system? Well, that's an interesting question. We probably should have asked Bex that, you know, because I can only answer that as a, I'm still an outsider, right? Um, do you mean in terms of like, what you could expect. Yeah, I mean, Bex referenced certain services that were made available to her, and I just thought, I wonder if those are mandatory or whether they are, you know, you can opt in. Um, yeah. And what, are you given the opportunity, are you forced into certain opportunities or um, asked to take part in certain schemes, or is it, listen, mm. you've got to get through this time, you can choose to, to engage with this, or you can choose not to engage with this. What yeah. does it look like for someone coming into that yeah. system? Yeah, okay, so you, when you come in at reception, you'll have an assessment, and they'll generally ask you what your kind of needs are around substance misuse, mental health, physical health. Whether you choose to engage with those health services is up to you. What's more mandatory is that you use your time meaningfully mm. and therefore engage in either education or employment. Now, that's an important thing to raise because feedback that we've had recently in some of our projects has been that a lot of the time prisoners are engaging in activities where they're just getting up and going to a job and they might be, 
I don't know, sewing something. And actually they're thinking, all right, I'm out of my cell and it's killing a bit of time. But how is this going to help me reform, rehabilitate, progress on the outside? So, um, you know, there's a plea that education and employment in prisons should be like meaningful and vocational and have a trajectory that carries them on the outside. Um, That's the only real thing that's mandatory, to be honest, educational employment. Um, they have association periods where they can come out of their cell, you know, if they're um, entitled to that because they have like a privilege scheme um, where you go from either basic up all the way up to enhanced. So you have various different privileges. Um, but there's a lot of time behind your door, regardless of whether you're engaging in activities or not. Yeah. Um, the service that I used to work for um, some time ago was um, was primary care therapy. So if somebody in prison was experiencing depression or anxiety, they'd be eligible to have at least six sessions of therapeutic input. And those kind of services are a bit more limited now in prison. If you have to be experiencing quite severe mental health um, symptoms to to warrant sort of mental health input. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a bit sort of budgetary stretch yeah. situation? Yeah. It's just. It's just prioritising things at that end of the spectrum rather than preventative and early intervention. I'm thinking, I mentioned earlier, I think we're just in conversation between us, um, there's, a, there's a company in the UK called Timpsons. Anyone will know Timpsons if they need to get their keys cut or get you know a pair of boots rehealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do a number of sort of jobs like that. Um, they're a really positive employer for, for ex-offenders. In fact, they make it part of their strategy to offer opportunities to ex-offenders. And I wonder, Sarah, if you think that there are enough uh, businesses actually offering opportunities, mm-hmm. actively going into to prisons mm-hmm. and, and or engaging with the prison service and saying, well, listen, we'll give someone a chance. Beck spoke about it, didn't she? She said you know, the turning point for her was to have someone someone care and 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 actually going into a workplace and having routine and structure actually something she ended up embracing as part of her you know reformation so yeah no I think think? I think that I think that um giving so I was in Belmarsh prison earlier and I think I mentioned to you I said to some of the guys I was working with you know I'm going to come and record this podcast later is there anything that you want me to say or get across for you yeah and uh, one of the guys said um you know, I don't know what I can do when I get out. I don't know what my options are. I don't know what I'm allowed to do. I don't know what I can apply for. There's such a sense of um, fear that if someone t- took the courage to apply for a job and had on their CV like that they have convictions, that they just they just wouldn't even be in, in the running. So people tend to shy away from that. If there was more of a culture of acceptance, I suppose, from employers... Um, you know, some prisons will have job fairs and that's amazing where um, local employers from the community will come in and actively recruit people. So they know that when they come out, they've got an opportunity. Mm. I met one guy uh, the other week in a different prison who said, you know, I've been given a card and I know that when I get out, there's a job waiting for me. Wow. That's such a change maker. Yeah. Um, I actually wrote a quote down from the CEO of Timpsons because I thought this was really um, profound. He said that in many ways... Uh, people in prison have failed society, but let's not forget that society has also failed them. Yeah. And that's why he, I mean, he really advocates for, um, it's, not that p- it's not that people should be g- automatically given a job, but let's at least consider them in the same way that we'd consider any other applicant. You know, let's just see them as a person and their skills and their, how they come across in an interview and, you know, 
let's give them an opportunity. I'm always keen, at least, not to to be an idealist. You know, to be fair, to be to be reasoned, uh, and to try and consider things from both you know, both perspectives. And but I think you know, I think there's definitely something. Um, it's just on a personal level, actually. I, I feel challenged a little bit about my opinion of, of ex-offenders, especially coming from being an ex-police mm. officer. What was amazing is, is sitting down with Bex. Um, oh, I love that. And you just... It's a classic, isn't it? It's like if you're scared of your neighbour, go and say hello, you know? Yeah. And it, it, I think spending time either... You don't have to necessarily um, you know, offer a job opportunity, but actually... Uh, speaking to someone that has been through through that process of being uh, involved in the prison system in some way i think it's important isn't it because it just immediately well in many cases breaks uh, you know any any fear you may have built up or or some sort of um what word am i trying to think of sort of stereotype of an expectation that you're going to get from a hardened ex-villain right i'm not going to mix with that sort of individual i actually Go and talk to somebody, you know, be, be prepared to yeah. have a relationship in some way or even just offer them um, some of your time in some way. I think you'll, you'll, have, your, you know, you'll have your thoughts challenged. And hmm. Bex is an amazing example of, some of, of why this kind of work is so important because she's demonstrated that change is possible. And if we had the attitude of, oh, what's the point? Just lock everyone away and, you know, hope for the best or, well, we'll deal with it when they're released. You know, like that, that's clearly ineffective. And and Bex is an amazing, amazing example. Someone that's turned her life around with support from certain pockets of the system and is, is is a shining example of why we shouldn't give up. I love the way she articulated the sense of just having someone believe in that. Oh, yeah. You know, just having someone yeah. want the best for her. And yeah. How important that was, how fundamental yeah. that was. And, and I think that's the, that's the thing, right? There's, like I said before, there are people working in our justice system, loads of them, you know, who, who do, who do yeah. um, believe in change. They work in that field because they want to help support change. The problem is that it's kind of fragmented. So mm. I might have a prison officer in prison who really believes in me, but then when I'm released... Yeah have a probation officer who doesn't have time to see me or I still don't have housing. So we need like a a conjoined system where that theme, that approach, that ethos, that, that, that approach where I'm seen as a valuable, worthwhile human being who's worth investing in and supporting, giving a chance, like permeates across the whole system from the police to the court system. You know, I volunteer in, um, in custody where I live. I go and um, check that people are being treated fairly in custody and I spoke with a sergeant there the other week and he was saying, you know, I see this. This is the front door, this custody suite. It's the front door. It's the f- maybe the first opportunity that someone has um, to, to, with help. Mm. And so if the police are using that as an opportunity, not just to arrest and convict, but they're saying, OK, while you're here, do you need any help? Like, mm. how's your mental health? Mm. Do you need to see a, a, a nurse? You know, that's just if that permeates across the system, I just think that's a way healthier approach. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? and you both brought up this continuity of care mm. something consistent in yeah. uh, through that the, all that change and being cut here and, and transferred there and coming in and out of prison and dealing with different people but actually having some sense of constants in their life how important that was yeah and now it, you might have already done it but i was going to just ask you if you were to dist- you know, tomorrow you're made um 
emperor of this land and you, you know let's wave a, a, a wand and you have the power to totally reform the way we do um, you know, the criminal justice system or at least in respect to the mm-hmm. prison system if you were to distill it down into something super basic and mm-hmm. easy to understand for a luggite like me you know, what, mm-hmm. what would you how would you surmise your, your findings your opinion um, so I think that all prisons should be um, configured as an enabling environment there's something that exists um, it's like a, it's an actual certification that um, prisons can get and environments can get and they are an accredited enabling environment and that means that 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 um, place is a place which seeping through the walls is a commitment to enable change to treat people decently to have a mutual level of respect between officers and prisoners and create a culture of hope to foster an empowering environment you know and even as I'm saying these words I'm thinking well what about this person that's committed this crime or you know my mum's been a victim of crime like I still believe I still think that I still think that 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 because it would it would enable uh, a reduced reoffending rate of course there would still be some people who would say screw the system and I'm not ready for change but I do genuinely believe that if we create wings prisons communities where people are yeah like opportunity flourishes and and you have the you can form those connections and human relationships where someone says you know what you've got loads of potential that that would be conducive to change and it's got to continue on the outside hasn't it yeah you know if these positive environments on the inside enabling environments on the inside they go outside and it dies overnight you get mm. so what's this 46 pound thing about that Bet's mentioned that's Is their that discharge grant yeah that's it, that's what you will leave prison with they'll give you 46 pounds that might be to get you know you can use that to get home or to get wherever you need to be because you might be being released and you've got to travel 100 miles to your bail hostel or right. wherever you need right. to get right. to um and yeah, that's just to, that's just to tide you over, get you your first meal, that kind of thing. But without housing, in certain cases, being secured, or well, certainly yeah. for Beck's case, in very very few cases, um, yeah. the many times she came out of prison, was any housing arranged. Well, a third of our prison of uh, our prisoners will come out without without having secure housing or anywhere to go. Wow, which and that's the thing, right? If we, if 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 you committed a driving offence, okay, God forbid, a million times you accidentally killed yes. someone, right? Yeah. It, okay, you're you're now you now a perpetrator of an offence. You're yeah. going into pr- prison. Yes, um, everyone abandons you. You come out. You've got nowhere to live. How could I honestly say that I wouldn't drink or yes. steal or you know like it's yes. just basic survival? So we're almost setting people up to fail. Yes, um, by giving them. By not, by not, it's like basic human needs. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Um, and often, don't ask me to quote what <laughs> that is like food, warmth, yeah, exactly. Water. Shelter, you know, but they, they don't, people sometimes don't have those basic needs met. So, the other thing is that, um, quite often, and this is going back to your kind of like, oh, what would I do if I was emperor of the world? Um, not the world, just Which the UK, you often focus not the, on, right? yeah, <laughs> just the UK prison system. Um, you know, quite often people are just trying to meet the needs that everyone else is trying to meet. Human connection, yep. relatedness, you know, purpose. So if we can support people to um, meet those basic human goods that we're all trying to achieve, except they don't necessarily have the skill sets or the opportunities to achieve them in a pro-social way, then we've actually all got a shared agenda. Let mm. me help you, like, get a purpose or feel connected to other human beings in a way that you don't have to harm others to do so. 
Can I ask you a question? Oh, gosh. Yes. So given your background in the police... I can edit this out, right? Sure. <laughs> given your background... Don't forget, I'm an interviewer too. <laughs> given your background in policing and mm. working in, you know, modern slavery and human trafficking and what you saw in your time away... Yeah. Um, has today in our conversation challenged any of your kind of views or perceptions around justice and rehabilitation? Um, yeah, uh, I think I think it has. I mean, I think what's interesting, and, and like, like I said earlier, I, I am kind of keen to try and be as balanced and fair as possible. Um, but I, I'll give you an, I'll give you a story um, in answer to your question. Uh, maybe this will buy me more time to, to, mm-hmm. to think of something more succinct to say. But I arrested a, a man once. He was wanted for a very violent crime, uh, for, for multiple crimes. And actually in the, in the process of, um, he was on the run and there was a big chase and he stabbed my colleague. And I ended up, uh, or at least I was involved in arresting him. And he'd hurt my friend and he'd hurt a lot of people. And I was angry and I was upset. Um, but I transported him to custody, and when I presented him to the custody sergeant, actually, all I saw was a very, very scared young man, and um, I was amazed, actually, and this is not, this is, this is not, I'm certainly not um, making out that I'm some sort of, sort of naturally uh, compassionate person or whatever, but I just felt a, a renewed sense of grace um, for, for, as I saw this guy standing there thinking, like, what he's done is horrendous. But where's this bloke come from? He's a youngster, you know. Where's he come from and, and what does his future look like? And balancing those two parts of your character is a challenge. I think I feel challenged and, and what this conversation and, and, and definitely from um, meeting with Bex, it's it just don't allow yourself, right, to get to, to think you've got it all summed up and that allow your views to be challenged, you know, and, and I want my views to be challenged. I don't want to, to feel comfortable in my, my you know, I've got it figured out. I know what needs to be done. The prisons are a mess. And uh, I want to hear. I want to learn. I want to be educated. I want to have my, my views challenged. And I, I'm actually more interested in being the gracious, compassionate version of myself than the hardened, scared, angry version of myself. So I think the thoughts that, 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 have, that have sort of this issue evokes for me is... Don't yeah, don't write these people off, actually. And I wonder if I can look for more opportunities to possibly engage with with ex offenders. Mm, good. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that will make the cut, um, but <laughs> I'll have to listen back to it. So thanks so much for for coming um, on the podcast. You know, it's it's such an interesting issue. Um, there's so much more we could talk about, and we could we could try and deconstruct these uh, you know, more specific issues to talk about. Um, so substance misuse and, and, and homelessness and um, suicide in prisons and all of these things that are linked, but, but we don't have time to do all of it. Um, so I appreciate that we've kind of stuck to a high-level uh, agenda on this discussion, but it's been really, really helpful. And you, what a remarkable person you are, and your knowledge is, is phenomenal. I'm so grateful that you have got, um, you've been graced and, uh, with, an in, with a personality that wants to spend time um, with people that most of us don't. Uh, or, or don't feel driven to and I'm, I'm grateful for that I'm grateful that you're working um, in the criminal justice system to, to try and see it improved so so thank you and I just wonder if you could ask 
ask the world, ask the listeners, ask me. Um, if you could ask us to, if you could challenge us in some way about this issue, what, what would you ask of us? I would probably ask um, that before you judge anyone, perpetrator of crime or not, just to consider that person's story and just to think, I wonder what's going on for them. Whether it's someone being rude to you in a coffee shop or, you know, I don't know, having a bit of an attitude, just stopping and thinking, I wonder what's going on for that person and just having a bit of kindness in your heart before you, before you judge or make an assumption about where that's coming from. I always send the same questions out beforehand to um, you know, every guest on the podcast. And sometimes we touch on them, sometimes we don't. But I'd love you to finish um, with, with your answer, if, you, if you've got the same one, to my question, which was, if you could ask the world to change in one way, what would you ask? Do you want to read it? I want to see what I write. <laughs> what did I write? Is it Miss World-esque? Yeah, World Peace. Oh, yeah, there you go. That's not dissimilar to what I just said. Just to be kind, right? Just to be kind always. There's no need to be unkind. There really isn't. Yeah. Go and have a rant in your car and <laughs> swear and say whatever you want. But you don't need to be mean to people. You don't know what the impact of, of that could be mm. on, on them. And you don't know what day they're having or what life they've had. Just be nice. That's what I liked about it, the simplicity. Isn't it? Yeah, everyone just be nice. Everyone just be nice. Exactly. It's not hard, right? Right. <laughs> Thank you so much for You're coming You're welcome. On. Thank you so much for having me. I love that. After all of the academia and countless hours of research, everyone just be nice. Just think of all the problems in the world that would be resolved if everyone was just nice to each other. You know what? I think she might be onto something. What I found interesting about that talk with Sarah is hearing how she's come away from her many interactions with people in prison with a real supporter's mentality, championing the belief that reducing reoffending only comes from engaging positively, not just punitively. You know, I think she's right. By simply locking people away in a big steel and concrete box and hoping that when they come out of that box, somehow all of their issues have been resolved, I think we might just be hoping for a bit too much. I think my major takeaway from, from the last two podcasts is just hearing how prison can be a really positive intervention and not just a form of punishment. Can I leave it there? Is it fair for me to be so simplistic and reductive? Probably not. But for now, I think I will put this one down. So you heard Sarah and I both mention the business Timpsons in the podcast for being a positive employer for uh, ex-offenders. I want to tell you about two other businesses working positively with ex-offenders. They both happen to be coffee companies. One of them is called uh, Redemption Roasters, which is based in East London. And the other is called Newground Coffee, and they're based in Oxfordshire, but they have got a pop-up in Selfridges at the moment. Both are brilliant initiatives providing opportunities in the coffee industry for ex-offenders, so check them out. On the subject of coffee, next episode is entirely dedicated to that particular product. We're going to be speaking to Josh Clark, the head of coffee at Clifton Coffee Roasters, and Sam McQuaid, their head coffee saucer. And we're going to be discussing the challenges of working in the coffee industry ethically, uh, transparent supply chains, doing business in the developing world, and a number of other subjects. At least for me, I find fascinating, and they're, they're really great pair of guys to educate us on that subject so please 
uh, tune in for that in a couple of weeks' time. So it's thank you time again. Can I say a particular thank you to Kelly and her team at the Jury's Inn in Brighton? So kind of them um, to put us up in that conference room so we could record the second part of our podcast. They didn't charge us or anything. I'm really grateful for that. If you uh, enter the discount code, the Justice and Coffee podcast, on Jury's Inn Hotel website, you'll receive... No, I'm joking, of course. There's literally uh, there's nothing in it for them at all. They were just uh, very, very kind and sympathetic to our cause and wanted to support us. So they uh, gave us that space. Thank you, Kelly and your team. I'm really grateful. Thank you to Neil and thank you to Dan for donating to our Kickstarter campaign to fund this podcast. Thanks so much, gents. This show was produced by Blue Bear Coffee Company. You can find out about us if you go online at www.bluebearcoffee.com. Please search for us and follow us along on social media, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, peace.